Hello, I'm Ben Williams, Administrator of Science at the Virginia Museum of Natural History. Welcome to the VMNH Cast. Dr. Adam Pritchard, the Assistant Curator of Paleontology here at the Virginia Museum of Natural History. So welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you. It's it's excellent to finally be here and have, to have something to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, very excited to have you. And I also wanted to point out, if uh, uh, you, you may well be familiar with Adam from the Tales of Ancient Life video series uh, on our social media, especially if you followed our social media during the pandemic. Uh, you know, Adam was doing these wonderful Tales of Ancient Life videos, and I was posting the uh, nature updates. And, you know, I, I, I think, Adam, it's no exaggeration to say that between the two of us, we uh, helped a fractured nation through its darkest hour. I've never quite thought of it that way, but yes, unquestionably. Unquestionably. We're here to talk today about something, uh, a very, very unusual critter that you wrote a paper about. Uh, a Triassic reptile called the Drapanosaur. So I guess we should start out, uh, what exactly is a Drapanosaur? That's an interesting question. So they are a kind of reptile, but they're not particularly closely related to crocodiles, not close to um, turtles, uh, lizards, or dinosaurs. They are so ancient a, a lineage that they aren't particularly close to any single one of those. They're weird looking. Um, there's actually lots of different types at this point, so the weirdnesses don't apply to quite all of them. With Overall, drapanosaurs seem to have relatively bird-like heads with kind of an enlarged uh, back of the skull, uh, tapered snout, sometimes you know drawn out into almost a beak. Their bodies are big and kind of barrel-shaped, but otherwise they look a lot like chameleons, in part because many of them have sort of a curly-cue tail that looks uh, prehensile. Some of them have modified that sort of curly-cue into um, the, the, the back of the tail essentially looks like a claw. Like there's literally a structure that looks like a claw at the end of these animals' tails. And if you look at one of these isolated tail claws, Paleontologists have mistaken them for regular claws, so it's they're bizarre in that way. They existed in um, they were first discovered from skeletons in northern Italy, but since then scientists have been finding them all across uh, different sites in Europe, and now in many many different sites in North America as well. Your paper is specifically focused on the hind limbs of these things. That's true. So. Um, why, I guess, what is it that is unique about the limbs of the drapanosaur? Well, in it's interesting. This is another place where they're varied. All drapanosaurs that we've ever found have extremely long, slender fingers. 
Um, again, something that makes people think of chameleons because they look like they'd be good at grasping you know, branch-like substrates and things like that. One particular group actually has just utterly savaged the rules of how you make an arm in um, a tetrapod, a four-footed animal, by taking one of the digits, particularly the index finger, and expanding that massively with a claw that is so large that is effectively the largest bone in the entire arm. Um, I did an analysis of those, and that strongly suggested that these were animals that used their forelimbs for what's called hook-and-pull digging. This isn't like burrowing digging, but the kind that anteaters do to grasp onto, say, an insect nest or a tree, you know, a tree trunk, rip it apart, and get at whatever food, food source is inside of that. And actually, since I described one of those trypanosaur claws, more and more different shaped claws have started to come out in the fossil record. So now we have a huge variety of these, these hand claws from different trypanosaurs. But that was focused entirely in the arms. Um, one, uh, one brief interjection, one of the things that kind of blew my mind, correct me if I'm wrong, but they would not have used those claws to dig out ants because they predate ants. They predate ants. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is evidence of probably beetles um, that infested uh, plant material, like uh, tree limbs, wood, during the Triassic. So they would have had a food source, but things like bees and ants hadn't evolved yet. That would be later in the age of dinosaurs that they first show up. That is amazing. And, uh, you know, and I have seen the the photos of the, um, or the x-rays of these forelimbs, you know, these fossilized forelimbs, and it's just an absolute mess. Um, It it is, honestly, when I saw it, I thought this looks more like a, a lobster claw than that somebody stepped on than anything resembling a, a forelimb. And uh, we'll come back to that question. But tell me about the, the hind legs. The so the hind legs of drapanosaurs really haven't received much attention, in part because their arms are so crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of that is because the good hind limb material we have is from the Italian specimens, the first discovered ones. And although these are beautiful and quite often nearly complete skeletons, they are squished onto um, slabs of dolostone or limestone. It's just kind of a quirk of their preservation. You see similar things in some of the skeletons from the Solite Quarry, one of the sites from the Triassic of Southern Virginia. So it's it's fortunate we have entire skeletons. We can look at those to understand how the bones are fitted together and what different bones, the proportions of the skeleton. But if you want to take a look at something like the details of how the bones would have moved relative to each other, the joint surfaces, or the kinds of small details that indicate where muscles would have attached, you're out of luck. It's not going to happen with one of these squished skeletons. But, fortunately, uh, my colleagues uh, actually identified a series of thigh bones from a site in northern New Mexico called the Hayden Quarry. Nothing to do with Dr. Bassett. Um, but the Hayden Quarry produces beautiful, like three-dimensional, undistorted fossils where you can see all these fine details. But usually they're just sort of like you find one thigh bone unattached to anything else. But we worked together. 
I had seen the Italian material. I had photos of that. I had documents about that. And we looked at the thigh bones we had from the Hayden Quarry. And we were able to identify, just looking across those, a series of what are called apomorphies. An apomorphy is uh, an anatomical feature, what we call a character, that links two different specimens. Um, and fortunately, with those linkages, and it, it, apomorphy is usually sort of a unique thing. It's not; it's something that's not shared with other groups of animals, because then you can't make that determination that it belongs to, in this case, a drapanosaur. Mm-hmm. But we were able to find those linkages and make a pretty strong case that we have the first really good 3D femora thigh bones from a drapanosaur. One of the questions I have is we had, um, uh, with our flight exhibit, we had something very similar to this where I'm going to botch the description of this concept, but basically uh, if you are a vertebrate and have a limb, um, the bones in that limb have corollaries to the limb bones of other vertebrates. So, for example, you know, if you look at, um, you know, a horse's front leg, you can basically say, okay, well, in a horse, this bone is the equivalent to this arm bone in a human. And so my understanding is you can also do this to some extent with the drapanosaurs. So how on earth, especially when you're looking at something that looks like it's been stepped on, do you sort of make these determinations and say, okay, well, this bone that looks uh, very unlike bones I might be familiar with, I believe this is this specific bone. This is a, a femur. This is whatever. What You're asking it? about homology, like the the actual, like the fact that bones, like we all, all vertebrates in essence have the same sets of bones yes yes so homology would be yes i i I did about a three minute description of homology Um, (laughs) that's what jargon's for yeah how uh, so yeah i guess how do you look at something unfamiliar and say and determine this is the analog is it just a matter of knowing knowing a lot more about anatomy than most people or how do you make sense of all this it's all about, again, the apomorphies. So in drapanosaurs, I'll use the example of a bone in the forearm called the ulna. We discovered in um, bones from the Hayden Quarry site and the bones of these Italian, some of these Italian specimens that they have a bone in their arm that is this massive crescent-shaped thing that's, that's part of the forearm. And there were all kinds of ideas about what this could be because no other four-footed animal has like this massive crescent-shaped bone. Mm -hmm. Instead, the bones of the forearm consist of the radius and the ulna, which are two in you, in me, in Tyrannosaurus rex, in baleen whales. It's all pretty much, with some exceptions, Mm -hmm. pretty much the same. They have long straight shafts. They have sort of an end that articulates with the bones of the wrist, usually somewhat rounded end. Um, then they have a depression at the, uh, the other end of the elbow joint that joins them to the next bone up in the arm, the humerus. And then they have a little tongue of bone that projects off the back of that called the olecranon process. That's actually what your triceps muscle attaches to. Um, so we know that about ulna. And we have this crescent-shaped bone in Drapanosaurus's position right around the the forearm. In both the Italian specimens and the one from the Hayden Quarry, 
we could see that this crescent-shaped bone, despite not looking like any other ulnae, basically, is still fitted against the humerus at one end and fitted against the bones of the wrist at the other. And when we have it in three dimensions and we look at the surfaces that actually fit, fit with the wrist bones and the end of the humerus, we see that same rounded end for the wrist bones and that same concavity that fits perfectly to the end of the humerus to make an elbow joint. And then we even have a little bit of this olecranon process sticking off the one end of the trypanosaur. So that's, again, and again, these count as these apomorphies, these bones, in this case, apomorphies that link all of the four-footed animals. Like, all of them possess these basics, this basic suite of things that makes an ulna an ulna. And so, because we have all these features that link the crescent bone in Drapanosaurus with the ulna in all these other animals, we make the argument that this bone, despite its weirdness, is indeed an ulna. And that's how comparative anatomy works. I mean, yes, you see in the fossil record things that just stretch the bounds of what you think bones or, or structures in general should look like. But it's a comprehension not only of other animals in the fossil record, but also of the anatomy of as many different groups of backboned animals as you can possibly understand to make those connections and be able to make solid identifications even of an isolated. It's fascinating stuff. And you know, one of the takeaways I have that is you know, not the main point, but I think interesting, um, you know, dealing with fossils from... Uh, or finding analogs and fossils from Italy to uh, New Mexico, these things must have had a pretty massive range. You know, this isn't yep. something found in just a small location. Are there any yep. theories as to, you know, is this just a portion of the range, or were these things all over the place? So it's funny, because um, the first trypanosaurs, those Italian ones, were first discovered in the late 1970s, and then a series of additional discoveries um, from the 80s to the early 90s. And they've been adding additional ones ever since. And for a while, that was it. Like, this was the record of Drapanosaurs. There are even some hypotheses that, oh, this is like, was like an island chain at, some, at this mm -hmm. point. And these were what's called an endemic radiation, a group of animals that are evolving only on this, this group of islands. Mm -hmm. um, and then they started pieces of them linked by these characters, these apomorphies, started showing up in Arizona and England and New Mexico. And now we've got them from Texas. Uh, we've got one from New Jersey. So we just keep kind of expanding out that range as we go. And considering the fact that Triassic sites in many places of the world other places in the northern portion of Pangaea, like what is now Russia and China, have not been looked at as intensively. I think there's very good likelihood that Drapanosaurs are up there. Same is true of the continents in the south. There's been less work looking at these small vertebrates there. I think, you know, we have a range now, but there is no reason at this point to think that we have defined the true range of Drapanosaurs. They're, they're just going to keep showing up elsewhere because that's a pattern we see in many different groups of vertebrates in the fossil record. We give them a constraint. We give them, you know, this is the, tr this is the truth. This is their range. This is what they look like. And then we find another one that just takes that idea and just busts through it completely. Yeah, that, uh, how does that 
stack up that range as far as some of the other uh, Triassic reptiles you study? You know, is this something that was clearly, you know, an outlier as far as how successful it was uh, in expanding its range? Or do you find a lot of uh, fossil reptiles that had pretty wide ranges like that? A lot of groups of fossil reptiles mm-hmm. had pretty wide ranges. The dinosaurs at this point in their history were relatively small animals. I would say the largest dinosaur at this period in time was probably only about as big as a horse. But they were already pretty much worldwide mm-hmm. at that point. Um, same is true of some ancient groups of crocodile relatives, um, Relatives, some you know, outside of dinosaurs and reptiles, uh, relatives of modern giant relatives of modern amphibians were pretty widespread. Uh, Drapanosaurs, you know, don't have the range of some of these animals. But like I said, with the dinosaurs, we're dealing with things that you know aren't huge compared to what we see later, but the size of a horse. The fossils of those kinds of animals are far less delicate, far less likely to be destroyed by all the things that happen to fossils before they get buried in the rock. And therefore, we're more likely to find the dinosaurs. And it's only once we start looking at a finer and finer scale that we will start to see, you know, I think the range of drapanosaurs, I think the range of a lot of small groups of vertebrates that we think are restricted to certain areas are just going to keep expanding, like the range of dinosaurs and some of these ancient crocodile relatives. And and you may have said this earlier, um, the drapanosaur was pretty small about how big was it? It varies depend on the species. Um, there is one from Italy called Vallosaurus that could uh, curl up comfortably in the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones we're looking at in New Mexico with the crazy claws and the new uh, the new femora that we're describing are probably on the range of maybe a foot and a half to oh, wow. two feet in length. They're you know, they're nowhere near as big as, say, the biggest iguanas mm-hmm. or something like that for something that, that would have looked similar. Yeah. So, decent-sized animals, certainly not giants. One quick question. Now, uh, this paper is now uh, published. Where was, uh, where was this paper published? We published this paper in a journal called Anatomical Record, mm-hmm. which is a really cool journal because it kind of spreads itself across both the anatomy of modern animals and fossil ones, because I think scientists in both camps that are studying the living animals, that are studying the extinct or you know, just the fossils of animals in general, both are starting to recognize just how inextricably linked they are. You mm-hmm. cannot really understand one without understanding the other. You know, sort of a, a odd question, but you know, every um, uh, biologist has, no matter their field, has a certain area of study. Uh, you know, Dr. Ivanov uh, studies a great deal of insects, but has a soft spot for hymenoptera, ants and uh, wasps and things. And, uh, you know, you tend to study these Triassic reptiles. So what is it uh, that I guess sort of draws you to these guys? What is it that uh, makes them hold a special place in your heart? I'll tell a short story first, but then I'll, exp- then I'll actually answer the question. I love, I love so, um the, one of the first times, God, it's been a long time since I first visited the Hayden Quarry site. It's now 84 years. No, 13. <laughs> it's been 13 years since I first visited there. And one of my first discoveries was one of these giant claws of a drabanosaur. Wow. And I was very excited. I went up to one of the scientists there, and I'll throw him under the bus, Dr. Randall Ermus of the University of Utah, who is a brilliant man. But he was feeling a little cranky that day. 
And I said, Randy, can you, I don't even understand Drapanosaurs. Like, where do they go in the family tree of reptiles? Like, what do we, do we really understand, like, what, their ancestry or anything like that? And he didn't have the time of day for that and just looked at me and said, I don't know. You go figure it out. And so I did. <laughs> or I, I, have, I have done my darndest to, uh, to do just that. Uh, but the reality, in a broad sense of Triassic reptiles, what makes them the most interesting, un- unequivocally, um, <laughs> is that they come to be in the wake of the largest mass extinction in Earth's history. So 252 million years ago, there's what's called the Permo-Triassic extinction, which wipes out an estimated 90% of the species in the fossil record. By comparison, the one at the end of the Cretaceous that wipes out the dinosaurs is more like 65%. So the Permian is leaps and bounds more severe than the Cretaceous. And it sees in many ways the world wiped clean of a lot of diversity. A lot of animal species go away, a lot of plant species, and all of a sudden there's empty space in the world's ecosystems as the world begins to recover from, in this case, probably caused by, the extinction was probably caused by massive volcanic eruptions in what is now Siberia. But yeah, the Triassic begins. There's this vast openness in the world's ecosystems, and in particular the reptiles, even in the earliest parts of the Triassic, start to go insane in terms of their diversity. You know, things that are more familiar in the very earliest Triassic, we see the very first uh, fish lizards, the ichthyosaurs, uh, the very first ancestors of the long-necked plesiosaurs, the first dinosaurs and their relatives show up pretty early on. As I said, there's a vast array of crocodile relatives, um, some of them land-dwelling animals, some of them aquatic, um, some of them ran on two legs, some of them you know, were on fours, but very much upright walking, some of them had teeth. Some of them did not. Um, so there's insanity there. And then in looking at the small-bodied animals, like like I have with the trypanosaurs and with some other groups, it, the insanity it continues there. And so with Triassic animals, every time a new, a new one is described, it again pushes the bounds of what we think a reptile should look like. And that, to me, like the fact that this is all happening during this this period of time after this extinction and once 201 million years ago is when the triassic comes to an end and at that point we start to see the establishment of what is almost i don't want to undersell it but it's almost the traditional dinosaur dominated ecosystem where you get big carnivores um armored plant eaters some unarmored plant eaters long-necked sauropod dinosaurs flying reptiles take the pterosaurs in the sky and then the ancestors of lizards and snakes turtles um, wandering around on the ground but in the triassic we not only had the ancestors of those dinosaurs and you know and a lot of those modern groups but also just this vast array of things that are you know completely unlike what we see today and in some cases, almost copies of what we see later in the age of dinosaurs. Dinosaurs copy the shapes and the adaptations of many Triassic reptiles. That that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this, you know, Drapanosaur itself is something that, you know, was occupying a niche that now would be occupied by, uh, you know, woodpeckers and mm-hmm. mammals like anteaters. But yep. at that time, you know, this predates all of those, so... 
reptiles were just going to throw stuff against mm-hmm. the wall and see what sticks. And one thing that's cool about some of the new drapanosaur claws that are coming out is they aren't really shaped like anteater claws in some of these cases. Some of them are shaped more like moles. Some of them are shaped, um, it's, most, it's mostly ones that look like moles. So it's possible, although we don't have the skeletons yet to go with those claws, which is annoying, uh, that uh, drapanosaurs were also breaking the mold. Although we have ones that do resemble chameleons, that do resemble kind of tree-dwelling anteaters, um, we may have mole-like ones as well. We may have ones that are doing completely different sets of things. They may be just as diverse as modern-day lizards, and we're just missing that because we're missing so much of their fossil record. So, yeah, oh, that's again, it's just like these ancient crocodile groups I was saying, where it's you know it's just throwing out all these crazy things they do. Drapanosaurs may end up being exactly the same once we keep studying them. That is fascinating. And there was one other thing I wanted to be sure and bring up. Is it true that? Uh, they were deaf. It's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. So I studied one of the first three-dimensionally preserved skulls of one of these animals. Their skulls, um, the skulls even in the Italian specimens that I said are mostly complete, still incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. And again, still squished, solidly flat. Yeah. Um, so understanding how all of those small, delicate bones were put together is just largely unfeasible with those specimens. But... Um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Sterling Nesbitt, now at Virginia Tech, discovered uh, during his research many years ago a three-dimensional skull of one. But its bones were literally less than a millimeter in thickness, so it really couldn't be physically prepared out of the rock. But we used micro CAT scan machines to get good three-dimensional models out of that and to rebuild the Drapanosaur skull basically in a computer. And one of the features that we saw in that was the bone, a bone at the back of the skull in reptiles called the quadrate, uh, was flat-backed. And this was odd for a Triassic reptile because almost all of them, most of them, have a quadrate that is bowed in the back. There's a sort of concavity, a, a, a depression that, you know, bows it forward. And if you look at lizards turtles, crocodilians, and even modern-day birds, the descendants of dinosaurs, it's that kind of region of the skull and the fact that it's bowed that way that allows an ear, the eardrum, to exist. And there's also, in reptiles, there's a single very long, thin bone that connects to that eardrum, connects it back to the, the, the brain, the hearing organs of hearing, called the stapes. And in most reptiles, from dinosaurs, turtles, to all the things I mentioned, it's a really delicate rod of bone. It very rarely fossilizes. But in the drapanosaurs, we found a stapes. Um, and it is a massive bone. It is absolutely enormous. And it sort of you know has a flat surface that fits against the uh, sort of cavity in the brain housing where the organs of hearing would be. Um... And that really looks like an animal that did not have what's called impedance-matching hearing, basically hearing that requires that eardrum to vibrate and sends those signals back to the brain. It's quite possible it could, quote-unquote, hear, but by basically positioning its head against the ground to absorb vibrations from that. Instead, uh, vibrations coming in through the air. So that's maybe a kind of hearing, 
but it's very, very different from what we see in pretty much almost all of the reptiles that are with us today, and indeed most of the reptiles that were around during the Triassic period. But you know, if you're digging beetle grubs out of a branch, it would be a pretty useful yeah, form. Of yeah, food. that's that's not something actually I actively considered. But it, but it does make a lot of sense that like that would be an effective way of detecting whatever you want to detect in the ground or in a tree or something like that. Yeah. Well, I feel quite proud of myself. You should. <laughs> I guess one thing to say is um, this was a collaborative effort with a bunch of other scientists. I was the primary author on this paper, the one that's listed first, but it wouldn't have happened without the help of my colleagues. In this case, Sterling Nesbitt, Michelle Stocker, Alan Turner, Randall Ermis, Nathan Smith, and Jennifer O'Lory. They were all very important in getting this off the ground and making this a better paper than it was. Well, thanks so much, Adam. I appreciate you talking about the uh, the Wild West of reptiles with me. And, uh, yeah, I hope we can uh, have you back on soon to uh, talk about your next project. I, I can promise very much more weirdness. Like, the, the weirdness of Triassic reptiles is far from tapped out, and I've ha- I'll have more stories to tell. I have an endless appetite for weirdness. I look forward to it. Good to hear. Thanks, Adam. And thank you for listening. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Carter Bank and Trust. And I'd like to thank my buddy, Doug Cheatwood, for the use of his song, Digging Up Dinosaurs and Putting Them Together Again. We'll see you next time. Digging up the dinosaurs and